Hello and welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for 2018. My name's Michael Amanato and this is Round 7, the Canadian Grand Prix. Canada has long been Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton territory, but in 2018 Ferrari dominated, with Sebastian Vettel taking a lights-to-flag win and the lead in the Drivers' Championship. In an unusually sedate race in Montreal, Hamilton finished fifth, but at least the accidental early waving of the chequered flag meant the tedium went for only so long. To ask why the Canadian Grand Prix didn't deliver all it promised, I'm joined by Ernie Black, who you might know as the F1 poet. Ernie, how are you doing? Great, fantastic. Thanks, Michael. It's uh, the race, perhaps, that not so many people expected. Normally, we come to Canada. It's a great, refreshing round after sort of the predictability of Monaco, if you like. But uh, we didn't get the kind of action and strategic variation that we expected after the first lap, of course, where we did have a crash. It was uh, definitely one of the more boring Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, I think uh, even... What was it? Two thousand and eleven. Uh, Jensen Button's win in the wet was even more exciting, considering most of the field didn't run for for several hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. There are a lot of reasons to dissect as to how this race did come about and how Vettel was able to win it in in such a straightforward fashion. I suppose, apart from the fact that he was on fine form this weekend. Uh, one of them, I think, that is important to note uh, is that the Hypersoft was making its second appearance here after it was debuted in Monaco. It's making only a couple of appearances this season as Pirelli's uh, softest tyre. And, I mean, sure, it didn't last particularly long here. I guess it was a good qualifying tyre because it does produce a lot more grip than any other tyres. It is a definite step over the ultra-soft. But at a circuit like this where there's still not a lot of energy, it's almost like you really need the track to be breaking up again to get a lot of variety from the tyres. It was, um, yeah, these tyres, uh, we had every range of soft tyre. It was almost, for the for the casual fan, it was mm. probably confusing. Uh, soft, soft, uh, super soft, ultra soft, hyper soft. You know, the hyper soft might as well be, as Mario Isola put it, the mermelade, the, the mm. marmalade, uh, for how soft they are. And, and yet, uh, you know... Um, I think it was uh, Gasly that, that actually ran 23 laps on it when they said it would likely last only uh, 10 mm. to 15. And this is sort of a, a trend we see with these tyres is that the teams inevitably can get more out of them than the Pirelli predicted maximum. And I mean, there's a bunch of reasons for that. A, the teams have all that practice time and they know what they're doing, I guess. And by the time we even get to round seven, they've used a lot of the tyres before. They've got a lot of experience with them, not to mention pre-season testing, of course. But down further into that is the fact that, I mean, we've got, so we've got this idea where Pirelli wants to create races that are somewhere between one and two stops because you, you want that tension where someone might be running a one stop and then the car behind might decide to two stop and overwhelm them with performance towards the end of the race with fresher tyres. Yeah, that's the kind of racing that tends to be quite exciting for all kinds of viewers. But what we're seeing, we saw this in Monaco, we've seen them in other races earlier in the season before, is that the teams prefer to just conservatively one stop. So we saw even the early stoppers in the top six, and we'll talk about them later, but likes of Verstappen and Ricardo and Hamilton can stop on lap 16 and still run for the rest of the race on, on one set of tyres. Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned something about having that unpredictability, and there's still people, drivers, mm. managing their tyres, where I think what Pirelli was trying to do was to say, here, run these compounds have your different strategies on the different compounds and run them 
uh, hard, mm -hmm. as opposed to everyone trying to manage to see if they could eke out a f you know a few extra laps on these compounds. It, it's actually doing the reverse of what it was meant to do. So, uh, you know, people are saying, oh, people, the drivers should be flat out all the time. Well, they have the option of doing that, but they, they're choosing not to. Mm. And that's, that's exactly it. It's really Pirelli, as we've said many times before, because it has always been the case ever since they came into Formula One, they just can't win. There's just no way that they can be allowed to deliver what they are asked to and what they are really delivering, because the teams always find a way to make it more straightforward than the strategy should be. Yeah, they're trying. I mean, look, we've got how many? We've got seven different compounds now. There's mm -hmm. selections, all sorts of selections uh, for teams to make and, and strategies to uh, to try. Um, and, and they do have a tough mandate. Mm -hmm. The FIA had told them, "Hey, we we want things to the tires to drop off and to give us different uh, uh, performances and and bigger gaps." And it's not easy to to deliver what they're being asked to deliver and then still deliver the, the show that the fans want. So they're kind of in between. Mm, I think they always have been and probably always will be. There's a contract coming up for Pirelli. I think it needs to be signed next year, so for 2020. And we'll see if anything changes in the way that they're going to approach the sport or the way that the sport approaches them, perhaps um, more to the point. Uh, but races like this, they do tend to give you an opportunity to to look a little bit further down the order, a little bit around at, at some of the other talking points of a weekend, which is which is always good. You know, there's always something happening at a Formula One Grand Prix, uh, and I think one that certainly caught my eye was, despite not finishing the race, of course, and uh, it's not the first time Fernando Alonso in recent years hasn't finished a race. Uh, we found out just exactly how high he rates himself. Yes, uh, <laughs> we, we were talking about this earlier. The uh... The infamous 9.5, <laughs> and uh, and as I said, the uh, we don't know exactly what the 9.5 is out of. If it's out of 10, <laughs> he's uh, he's quite high, uh, but if it's out of 20, he's uh, mediocre. So I think uh, I, I think he just he, he he gave himself the 9.5 just not to look like an ass and say well, I'm the perfect 10. <laughs> I think that's probably probably the way it goes with Fernando Alonso. Uh, he wanted to say, you can kind of see him in the interview, he wanted to say he was the best. He did smile. Did you see that, that little <laughs> smirk there? Like, yeah, I know I'm number one. But. Yeah, you know, we all know where this question's going. But, you know, he wanted to be modest. So you take off half a point and now <laughs> he's just another guy. Complaining to the crowd. He's just another guy. <laughs> uh, now, Fernando Alonso aside, we'll talk about it a little bit later, perhaps. Let's talk about qualifying, though, where Mercedes and Ferrari actually managed to do most of the weekend without the hypersoft tyres. In fact, Mercedes and, and Lewis Hamilton in particular lamented the fact that they hadn't brought very many of them. Only five sets, I think, which is really only enough to get you to the end of qualifying given you've got to use them at least once in practice if you want to use them for qualifying. Um, Red Bull Racing, on the other hand, though, and this is something we saw in Monaco with the Hypersoft tyre as well, were pretty comfortable with it. In fact, they qualified in Q2, which means they start the race with it, and everyone assumed that they were going to two-stop, and yes, we've talked about how no one wants to two-stop, but they were always confident of one-stopping with these tyres. If we compare that to how Ricardo used the Hypersofts in Monaco compared to everyone else, that car just seems to be working better with these soft tyres than anyone else's car. That Red Bull is very gentle on its tyres. It's almost like a, you know, it's almost soft porn. <laughs> Uh, when it when it when it comes to when it comes to uh, uh, the how how hard the car is on on tires, uh, we've noticed that Ferrari doesn't necessarily perform well with certain tires, uh, especially I think it was Spain where they they really struggled, um, and uh, Mercedes seems to struggle to turn on the tires. 
which makes you wonder whether or not maybe there's a little too much friction and they can't necessarily switch on those hypersofts mm -hmm. before they become unusable. So uh, that Red Bull, aside from, from having a, a very competitive chassis, because we know that they're down on power and yet they're still winning races, is very, very delicate mm -hmm. on those tires. Yeah, and it says, I mean, what they've been saying for a long time and what I suppose we really did learn after Monaco is that that car... If only it had, a, I suppose, an engine that was a few tenths further up the grid, which uh, they did get an upgrade this weekend. It did look a little bit more competitive, but that car could be right there. But one of the other things I thought that was probably pretty important from qualifying, and I think that certainly panned out in the race, was that Lewis Hamilton could only manage fourth, which was behind his teammate, Valtteri Bottas, who qualified second. Now, this circuit is one of those Lewis Hamilton circuits, sort of like a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit of a fortress for him, to be honest. Uh, it's that record he had up until this weekend was that any time he'd finished the Canadian Grand Prix it would be on the podium and more often than not it would end in victory he was going to equal the record of seven victories at the Canadian Grand Prix this weekend he's currently got six but he was just really nowhere all weekend I was absolutely shocked to see Bottas that close to Vettel and have Lewis on the track that he loves that seems to be he seems to be really hooked up onto the circuit uh, unable to uh, to answer that challenge and it's so unlike Lewis uh, especially here uh, in Montreal, um, really, you you knew immediately that something was off. Whether it was uh, whether he was nursing a, a sick uh, power unit or something, but he was not Lewis as we've known Lewis to be on the circuit. Mm, and that sort of uh, it probably speaks a lot about where Mercedes at is that it seems like that car is not in that sweet spot we hear them sometimes talk about because when the, when it is, Hamilton excels. But on those occasions where the car seems to need a little bit of work, it, it tends to be Valtteri Bottas who maximizes it, which is a, a, a dynamic I found over the last 18 months really interesting about those two drivers. I wonder if it's just a matter of him being able to, to manage his psychological... Uh, I think Lewis needs to know that he's hooked up. Um, I, I, th I still think that he's he's brilliant even at managing uh, a bad situation. But for some reason, you're right, I think Bottas, for some reason, he, he's able to get a little bit more out of the car when he doesn't necessarily feel as hooked up as, as Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And if we look into the race now, where, again, Hamilton's unhappiness in that car was obvious and yes there were some mitigating factors uh, in the race against his performance one of which was an engine that was overheating uh, and it's important to note that Mercedes didn't have was the only engine constructor this weekend that didn't have a new engine for this race where just one third of the way through the season now the teams or each driver get only three power units for this season so it's sort of the logical point to bring it in as well because uh, the Canadian Grand Prix is quite a power sensitive circuit so to have a new engine to have those extra horsepower can be quite valuable uh they struggled a little bit with their engine though it must be said that it is still within its its life cycle so they weren't pushing it beyond any maximums but uh perhaps contributed a little bit to the fact uh that ricardo who started from sixth uh this is one of his historically poorer circuits he doesn't normally qualify very well here but he managed to jump lewis hamilton in the pit stops partly because hamilton had to pit on uh, lap 16 to try and open up some cooling on the car to give that old engine a little bit more uh, airflow. Yeah, I have something. I have a feeling it had something to do with the fact that uh, that car doesn't necessarily follow other mm. cars well. I think none of them do, but we have seen uh, Mercedes struggle for grip when they're when they're a little too close to the car in front, and uh, performance is just not there. 
Um, having said that, I think um, Nikki Lauda had said that the they would have brought the power unit to Canada, but it wasn't. They didn't feel mm -hmm. that it was quite there yet, and maybe in terms of reliability, and so they they were playing cautious. Um, you know, Mercedes, you have a, you have this feeling that when they do deliver, they they deliver big. So they may know they may have been managing um, expectations somewhat in Canada by not bringing it and uh, knowing that they, they'd be able to perform much better going on, uh, you know, with the, the remaining races. Yeah, and we'll wait and see. That's expected to be debuted in France, which I suppose is a bit of an unknown circuit for everybody, given we haven't been there for some time. Uh, and maybe that'll really give them the edge when everyone's still coming to grips with that circuit. Uh, for Ricardo, it was really just a, a classic overcut, uh, that strategic phrase that's used from time to time. Uh, Hamilton pitted on lap 16, and then Ricardo set what at the time were two purple sectors for sectors one and two, and then pit at the end of that following lap. Uh, he had about, I think it was 19 second advantage after Hamilton had made that pit stop and a pit stop's worth about 18 seconds here and he emerged one second ahead of Hamilton and that was the position done given that no one else was going to stop twice there was not really any jeopardy left in that there was a little bit of a battle towards the end uh, but it didn't really come to anything uh, and we will talk about how that battle ended later on uh, Kimi Raikkonen tried the same thing though uh, he had a little bit more than an 18 second advantage he'd waited until lap uh, 32 to stop so he'd almost split the race in half uh, but just couldn't manage it and and I think Ferrari maybe missed an opportunity here because Hamilton didn't really have much going for him this race I think Kimi may have waited a little too long on, the, on those tyres did not put in the purple sectors he needed to put in or or anywhere close to, to purple in fact uh, around that time he, he didn't he didn't pull that gap that he needed uh, uh, to come out in front of uh, of Hamilton after after his pit, unfortunately, um, I think he was doing everything he could. I think he knew what he had to do. It just wasn't able to deliver. So I'm gonna say it was either uh, it had to be either the tires were had dropped off uh, to the point where he really couldn't couldn't get the grip that he needed, or he he must have made some sort of error while while he was pushing. I didn't see any uh, sector times to to prove that. Uh, he may have had an off or, or whatever, uh, or a bad corner. Um, but I think he definitely missed the boat there um, with regards to the strategy in terms of trying to get in front of Hamilton. He might have tried something different. Um, might have worked, you don't, you don't know, but he probably should have pitted a little bit earlier. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out, I mean, trying something different would have been nice, but as we sort of talked about, I guess no one wants to try anything different these days, because there, there was, I suppose, in some respects, not that much for him to lose. Maybe he, he would have jumped Hamilton had this strategy worked perfectly, but otherwise he was probably going to finish sixth, which is where he ended up finishing. Uh, but if we look at where he finished, yes, six, but also 27 seconds behind Sebastian Vettel on essentially the same strategy. They pitted only four four laps apart from each other or three laps apart from each in other. In the same equipment. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly right. In the same equipment. It's not really the performance that Ferrari is surely looking for as they enter yet another contract negotiation phase for Kimi Raikkonen. At, at one point, he was 40 seconds ahead Um he was he's 40 seconds ahead and five seconds behind Hamilton and uh, he, they could have tried to stop for a uh, do a second stop and for some reason uh, they decided not to and I, and I think we learned at the end of the race that the the strategy there was that they Ferrari did not feel that they felt uh, sorry, they did not feel as though it was warranted to take a risk because 
I think they, they probably prefer to just take the points that he was going to get as opposed to risk losing them should something happen. And it's, it's that risk aversion that leads to these kind of straightforward one-stop races, though, doesn't it? I mean, there was no tyre impetus to do it in the sense that the tyres were always going to last. I mean, we knew that because Verstappen and Ricardo and Hamilton all had were running very long stints on the Supersoft. But by that same token, had uh, Raikkonen had a another set of a, a softer compound than the Supersoft, given Hamilton's tyres were so old by the end of the race... Uh, you know, something could have happened. And these are the ideas that Pirelli ideally would love teams to try with the tyres they're producing, with the seven compounds they're making. But uh, no one really wants to give it a go. No, sad, but uh, sad but true. Mm. And this is the, the Formula 1 we find ourselves in. Further down the midfield, though, and that was the, the way the top order finished, by the way. Vettel from Bottas from Verstappen, actually. A word for Verstappen, because in all of the analyses of this race... Um, he's been actually kind of the anonymous man despite finishing on the podium which is exactly where he qualified very competent and and quiet weekend for him but I think that's exactly what he's needed after the first six races of the year that he's been so heavily scrutinized for for crashing and causing accidents yeah Max needed uh, desperately needed a clean race he needed a good result he needs to get his head back into it Um, I know uh, you know it's difficult when you're 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 struggling um, and you're you're making errors and whatnot, how important it is to just have that one clean mm-hmm. race. So now he's starting fresh. I'm hope I'm hoping he can uh, uh, keep it clean and maybe start taking points away from other people to make this championship even more exciting. So, although as we've discussed that it's been a little boring on certain tracks with regards to uh, the action on the circuit. I think the championship is far more exciting. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, if anything, you know, right now we have no idea which way this is going to go. And we're, you know, we're a few races in now. So mm-hmm. you start to see, you'd hope to start to see someone starting to pull away. And, and yet we're at one point away uh, from two, two guys at the, at the front. And, then, and the guys behind aren't that far behind. So mm-hmm. it's looking like a, to the championship itself is probably more exciting than the races right now. Yeah, one point in the Drivers' Championship, 17 in the Constructors'. Seven, that's actually surprising me, 17 in the Constructors', considering that, you, you, well, certainly last year, for example, Mercedes just scores naturally more heavier than, than Ferrari because the driver lineup is a bit more consistent. But uh, yeah, how this pans out is anyone guess, uh, which is certainly good for Formula One. Uh, one other part of the field that certainly always seems to deliver is the midfield. They were a little bit quiet again in this race, but I think one thing that's interesting, especially going into his home race the next round, the French Grand Prix, is that Esteban Ocon should have gone in on a real high. He should have finished this race seventh, I'd have thought. The Force India was quite quick here, partly because they had that Mercedes engine and the car's normally been quite good in a straight line, partly because, again, of that engine. Uh, He passed Nico Hülkenberg. He was started eighth, passed Hülkenberg for seventh on lap one. And we only had one pit stop, and that one pit stop went wrong. He had a jack problem, fell behind both Renaults, finished closely behind them, I think only a second, which really showed how much performance he had. But another opportunity lost for Force India after they had a fairly slow start to the year. That rear jack, man, it, it reminded me of uh, of the, the typical basketball air ball. It was <laughs> like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift, I'm lifting, I'm like, no, there's nothing here to lift. And uh, it was unfortunate. He did. He did lose. Uh, he lo- did lose time there. Um, on the topic of Force India, I think it was Perez that did a little pirouette there. Mm. Uh, I don't know how he did not collect anyone. I know he saved. That was masterful driving by Perez, by the way, to keep that car on the mm. not off the walls. Let's say not on the track, but off the walls, and uh, and not pull a gross gen and, and kill some <laughs> livestock. 
<laughs> and he did that all the while complaining to his team that science should get a black flag. So he's a real multitasker. That yes, the black. Wow, that was. And there was nothing. I mean, he must have been furious when he realized the steward said, "No, that's fine. No black flags today." Just uh, we'll throw the checkers out early. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe they want. They were trying to throw the black flag. Maybe that was the problem. That's why the chicken flag went out early. They just made up their mind very late about which flag they wanted to wave. Crazy, crazy. That Perez versus Signs incident. As much as I watch it back, I still can't exactly figure out how they managed to collide with one another, or why Perez was so aggrieved by it. But uh, such is the way that sometimes the heat of racing makes um, battles look when you're in the car. Uh, the other two drivers that are certainly worth mentioning in terms of their performances, one was Pierre Gasly, who ran a, a really impressive stint again after he, he did a similar thing in Monaco on the Hypersoft tyres. 23 laps on Hypersoft tyres to start the race uh, and then went super soft to the end. Uh, which just shows that he's really coming into his own Formula 1, isn't he? Like, he's really, when things are sort of aligning for him, his performances are very, very strong. Yes, Gasly did uh, did well. Um, he's confident. He seems to be getting more comfortable as time goes on in the car, as, as uh, you would expect. Um, uh, he started, did he not start dead last? 19th. Or oh, 19th, yeah. So he was, uh, I mean, look, he, he's been doing uh, he's been doing well, and I, I, I'd like to see him eventually maybe get a, a more competitive drive to see what he can really do as uh, as we've seen uh, also Leclerc mm. um, very impressive performance um, I think he, he finished 10th uh, got some got one point and uh, you know it's been pretty solid I, I think so we've got some good talent coming into the sport so the future if they can get the cars <laughs> right uh, and the formula right uh, we've got some we've got some good solid performers coming mm. up. Uh, so that was a 19th to 11th drive uh, and Grosjean was the other man who, who did quite well considering he started last. He's had a pretty difficult season. It was not made any better when his engine failed seconds into qualifying as he was going down pit lane in fact. Uh, he said it was such it was so unfortunate after all these races that he just had to laugh to himself which I suppose you either laugh or you cry. Uh, he had a great long first ultra soft stint he went to lap 48 before making his one change and this really shows i suppose what we talked about earlier the idea that you expect a safety car you expect something to happen in canada and that's what this strategy was all about a it was about the fact he could extract good pace from that tire but running to lap 48 was really them waiting because i think he was up to ninth at one point towards the end of that first stint had a safety car emerge he probably could have held on to ninth and had a free pit stop um and it was fair enough for them to want to count on that at a circuit that has a pretty high incidence of safety cars but it wasn't to be yeah how much would that have changed the race uh the result or at least the excitement had we had another one or two safety cars uh out there i think it probably would have wreaked the havoc would have brought the uh, the pack together and uh you know it could really have changed the dynamic of the race um on the topic of the 48 uh, laps on the ultrasofts it's not that far off from ericsson who ended up doing 67 on the supersofts uh, that was the longest stint on the super softs in the Sauber. So that's, um, and it wasn't his fault. No, no, it wasn't. It was never his fault. It was never his fault. Uh, yes, Ericsson executing one of those Sauber strategies, essentially a no-stop race uh, by running pretty much the whole race on, on one set of tyres by not stopping. Uh, how much that whole race was, though, is the question. There's one uh, one thing left really to consider in this Grand Prix, and that was how many laps it was run. It's a 70-lap race classified after 68 laps because a flag was waved on lap 69, the chequered flag, of course, uh, by accident, in error. 
which meant that uh, according to the regulations, we count back to lap 68 for whatever reason that is. Uh, and while not too much was lost from that, there was not a lot of fighting for position. Sergio Perez did lose a position to Kevin Magnussen. He passed him, uh, I think, on lap 68, it must have been, uh, and therefore was not given that position. And also, Daniel Ricciardo lost his fastest lap. Oh, he was... Did you see his face? Mm. He was devastated. He was like, no, that was mine. And you know what? I, it should have It should have been his uh, fastest lap. He was... It's 113.835 versus uh, 113.864, but Verstappen mm-hmm. snagged the fastest lap, which actually helped me in my uh, fantasy GP pool. <laughs> so uh, I wasn't totally mm-hmm. as bummed out as uh, as Ricardo was, but uh, boy, he was devastated when they mm. told him he didn't get it. Yeah, and to his teammate as well. So it did have some effect. It, I mean, you know, there's an award given out for fastest lap. It's not a particularly important award. But uh, still, you know, there were effects to this um, flag-waving incident. And more unusual still, perhaps, is the fact that this is not even close to the first time somehow this billion-dollar sport has accidentally ended one of its own races early. <laughs> so there's been a lot of talk on social media about this, uh, a lot of tweets about uh, why is this person doing it and she's, she's not a fan of the sport, why don't you get a fan to do it? I personally would like to see Charlie Whiting, uh, fake Charlie Whiting do it because he was in the house, so he might as well... Might as well do it. Uh, if you can't press the button, at least let him end the race. But someone, someone has told her to wave the flag. Someone gave her the flag and said, here, wave this. Mm-hmm. And so she did. So she can't technically be held totally responsible for this. Like there's some level of responsibility to say, hey, uh, should I be, what lap are we on? Oh, 68, maybe I should mm-hmm. wait. Um, you know, because it is a 70 lap race. So there must have been something. I mean, I think Vettel realized, hey, well, wait a second, mm. I'm, this is too early. And so he kept going. But there are, there could have been the possibility of someone letting off because they see the flag and, oh, it's over. Mm. And even I'm sure they're not counting. So Yeah, well, I think so. it must have been Nico Hulkenberg who said it, but I, someone mentioned I, that I think it was Kimi Raikkonen who did slow down when he saw the checkered flag and then was obviously told that it wasn't over. And there were marshals coming out onto the track and waving all their flags as they do at the end of the race. So there was a lot of confusion. Uh, I think Vettel said he was concerned that not unlike uh, Australia two years ago, the flag didn't wave early there, but the idea that fans would come onto the track and then uh, obviously it'd be a very dangerous situation. Uh, so a whole bunch of things happened. I think Charlie Whiting, after the race, said the problem occurred because there was a a marshal, I think it was, who was in the the in the um, the, the box or the cage or whatever you'd call it, where the flags waved. Uh, he called up to race control to ask whether or not it was the last lap, uh, and he received an answer. Oh, they didn't realize that he was asking a question, so they confirmed that the last lap was this lap or whatever. And then just decide, assume that he was being told to wave the flag. So it sounds like it was a it was a series of miscommunications that led to this being a sixty-eight lap race instead of seventy laps. No, well, it gave us something to talk about other than the race because uh, <laughs> there was there wasn't much else to talk about. Well, it was it was we got a race. We got another chapter. I think, as you said, I think you correctly said of the championship, a championship that is tightening up and is exciting. Uh, and there were one or two things worth talking about that, that may indeed become threads for the rest of the season. Hopefully, though, all future races will run to their intended distance. Uh, the Canadian Grand Prix, it's always fun, even if you wake up at unusual times in different parts <laughs> of the world. It's been a pleasure to look back on it with you, Ernie. Oh, it was fantastic. Uh, thank you again, Michael, for uh, for having me on. 
that was Ernie Black, the F1 poet. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast, and you can get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review to help other F1 fans find the show. You can also read the written report at f1strategyreport.com and stay up to date by finding us on Facebook and Twitter. My name's Michael Laminato. You can find me at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in two weeks' time for a wrap-up of the French Grand Prix.